Hey, this is Jason Bentley. Thank you for checking out the Metropolis podcast produced here at Nonprofit KCRW. Going to get going in just a few seconds, but first I want to ask you for your support because when you support KCRW, you're also supporting music discovery and the emerging bands that you love. Now, we've made it easy for you to send us 10 bucks. Just text KCRW to 20222. That's it. Thanks, and here's the latest show. It's 89.9 KCRW. I'm Jason Bentley, and I am here with Above and Beyond. And to just set the scene, uh, we're at SIR Studios in Hollywood, which is really an odd place. It's like a rock and roll museum as you come in here. It's, it's kind of bizarre. Um, we are on the eve of your shows at the Greek, which is Above and Beyond um, Acoustic, which is you know, an interesting uh, switch. Uh, of course, for people who know you, it's more of an electronic uh, sound. So I guess my first question is, why? <laughs> we uh, were all musicians before we started producing, and it's been evident on the odd occasion when we found ourselves at after parties or in hotel receptions with pianos that the desire to perform is kind of bubbling under the surface all the time when, 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 you're, when you're in a group like we are and we're writing songs in a, in a fairly organic form and then turning them into electronic productions. So it felt quite natural to me. I just I always wanted to be on MTV Unplugged. Yeah. And, they, and they, they don't do it anymore. It was that and to, Top of the Pops I really wanted to be on and that's not on TV anymore anyway. So we decided that we would just do MTV Unplugged ourselves. So that's really what it is. Interesting you mentioned that. that so the songs begin in a more of a raw form they build up for the final production as electronic music and this is really a process of stripping it back down and rearranging so what have been the the greatest challenges uh for you guys in this process well obviously we are musicians but uh, we haven't actually done any gigs for years except for tony who's played with his uh, band sad loves and giants quite a bit in europe so you know sort of getting up there in front of people and playing it although it does come reasonably naturally um, you know, there's been a lot of rehearsals, a lot of practicing, a lot of preparation. Thankfully, we've worked with a great guy called Bob Bradley on the musical arrangements. So he's been doing the kind of musical direction, and that's taken a bit of uh, weight off our shoulders. But uh, I think it's just been, you know, relentless rehearsals that's been the challenge, really. Any, any surprises? I mean, have you decided to kind of arrange any unexpected instruments? Break it down for us. What instruments are you using? Well, Bob had the idea of including a harp. We've got uh, a string quartet, we've got harp, we've got a couple of guitarists, um, we've got piano, Rhodes, bass guitar. We've got a lot going on. It's a big. It's kind of a big band, actually. And I think um, one of the most exciting moments for me is the kind of John Barry-influenced arrangement that Bob put together of Alone Tonight, which is, you know, really tongue-in-cheek. And I think we can sort of get away with it because of the fact that the song's already out there. It's kind of a new treatment rather than a complete rip-off of James Bond, you know? <laughs> Is there is there any a significance to doing this in Los Angeles for you? I think um, you know in LA we've got some of our most ardent fans, so it's, it it just makes sense to come and do it here, uh, and we can believe how well the tickets sold. So we were heartened by that. Yeah, you know this is also a leap of faith. Do you have any concern about how it will uh, <laughs> be received by your fans? Who, you know, the scene that that you exist in, there are a lot of purists uh for the music well we we did sort of wonder about that 
um, in the lead up to the London shows because we did already five shows at the Porchester Hall in London. And um, I think straight after the first show, it became really evident that, you know, if it's good as it is, it delivers. And then the atmosphere on those nights was really magical, much better than we could have ever thought. And obviously with our three amazing singers, well, four if we include Tony, which we obviously do. <laughs> um, go with three amazing, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, I don't even count. I mean, the, and the other thing is that we've sort of laid the ground for this. We Years ago, we did a, a remix competition for Satellite, which was a, it was a big hit for us. And the mix that came second was a kind of chill out, mix sound a bit more like a kind of Trevor Horn production in halftime and occasionally we'd, we'd sort of end the gig by playing that and then we did a, an acoustic version of um, On a Good Day and we also started playing that at the end of the gig and the thing that we find is that people kind of connect to our songs and then when they hear it in a slightly stripped down form they can still sing along so there's been this bit the end to our DJ shows which is effectively a kind of precursor to this a, a kind of taster for it where we played one or other of those acoustic versions and we find the reaction is, is fantastic that I think years ago when you know the acid house scene first started people would sort of stand in a dark room and the dj would be there somewhere and but you'd be kind of dancing around your handbag and or your bag of things um and uh, and and you know not really it was man purse yeah man purse <laughs> merce um whereas now it seems uh, increasingly the shows that we do people are kind of looking at the stage and we've kind of adapted to that by giving them more something to look at with a light show and everything else that we do so it feels more like a gig anyway so i think it's it's not as big a step as it might be you know although i think probably for our music, it's a bigger step, say, to go to Unplugged than it would have been for a rock band because you know, they're already playing guitar. So it is quite a big step, but it seems like the, 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 the faith that people have in the songs and the knowledge that they have, I mean, these songs are very well known. Some of them are you know, 12 years old, so they've had time to kind of get used to the words and all the different versions of them. So it kind of works. Yeah. And does, it, does it kind of um, underscore some universal truths about just writing a great song and a great melody? I think so, because some, some songs that we've written are kind of easier to make into these kind of arrangements than other ones. You know, a lot of dance music can get away with having one simple hook, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, the, the songs that are more kind of complete in a traditional sense have been a lot easier to arrange in this form. You know, this, this also begs the EDM question, and it's an interesting counter to the, the frenzy of, of interest in the talk about this, this movement right now. You know, you've, you've intentionally brought this show to a conventional venue, would you bring this to a festival setting to essentially a rave like EDC? Well, the funny thing with this project is that it's been almost sort of unplanned and we're always sort of thinking, you know, one show ahead. And when we did the London shows, that was supposed to be it. And here we are in L.A. about to do the Greek. So I wouldn't rule anything out. You know, the future is all there for the takings. Let's see what I think it might be an easier thing to take into something like Coachella or Glastonbury. Um, and in some ways for us, it would be more interesting to do that because then there's the chance to kind of reach new fans as well as our existing ones. You know, I, I mentioned EDC and um, it was just so evident at the show this year of what a grassroots um, fan base you have. I mean, it's really stunning and even when i might have expected that generally speaking trance or progressive is not as in fashion you know 
still there's this, you know, rabid audience. And um, it's funny, I guess it's just a testament to quality over time, sticking with it and your fans are there for you too. So that, that's got to feel pretty special. That's what I was going to say earlier about uh, when we were talking about uh, whether the fans would feel alienated by this. I think, you know, because we've built up quite a lot of trust over the years with them, they sort of go with us and support us. And that motivates us to carry on doing what we do because, you know, we've got that kind of relationship with our fans and we're, we're really thankful and, uh, you know, fortunate to have that, I think. What, what did you make of EDC this year? From my perspective, it seemed like a pretty landmark event. But how did, how did you feel? It's funny because when you're up there with that big a crowd, you actually feel kind of insignificant because there's all this stuff happening around you and it's um it's actually quite hard to connect with such a big audience and so it's quite a different experience to doing a club show or even a a normal festival i mean you know it's like when you're in a plane and you're looking down at things going on below you and everything is so small it kind of felt like that at edc on the stage all these people were so small because the distance and the size of the thing it was just it was bizarre actually how do you feel about kind of all of the, the hype around the scene right now do you think it's sort of uh teetering dangerously on a it's kind of going to pop a little bit that's kind of scary <laughs> for fans that have been around for a while at least it sort of went through a similar thing in england i feel i mean i we, we we've always just tried to do our own thing and we've been delighted and encouraged and helped i guess by the explosion in something which seems to be happening just a little bit to the side of us or below us i don't know we are being supported by it but we've really only entertained doing pop music when we've done it accidentally uh, i don't think there's ever been a, a, a desire in us to kind of follow the the kind of main market point and as you say it's become so popular now that you know pop stars are getting edm style remixes they're working with edm producers that can only last so long. Uh, once you start becoming a fashion, then you move out of fashion. And we've, I think, tried just to do our own thing. I mean, this is the most bizarre thing that we could possibly do to uh, further our DJ careers, really. But it feels right to us. So. You know, one of the, the interesting growing pains with, with the advent of EDM as a, as a phenomenon here in the last few years is, is DJ versus producer. And you guys manage both, actually. But it's sort of a, an identity crisis in the scene that has to be worked out because the producers are being put forward as DJs, but they're playing their own compositions, you know, as a DJ. So there needs to be a different name for it because I think for those of us, you know, myself, that you know, I'm a classic DJ. I mix records. You know, we go deep. I'm telling stories, you know. Um, <laughs> um, and it's not, you know, it's not what I'm seeing on stage. And I completely understand that, that a producer is involved in an entire show that's connected to lights and choreographed and everything. So it can't be as, you know, from the hip as a DJ. It can't be the same thing. What's your perspective on, on the DJ versus producer? Well, I think there's a place for both, especially on the sort of big festival stages, uh, where people have that expectation of of being delivered a real show, then the kind of producer angle really works. I think if you have the songs that really connect with people and the people want to hear, then there's the sort of as I think you know the boat party situation, which I'm sure you're very very well rehearsed at. Or oh, the boat party situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the boat party situation, and uh, and um, well, you have to experience it, but. Um, <laughs> It's, it's when music is, is there more as a background 
thing to create a mood and take people on a real journey, but where that's not necessarily the kind of sole focus of it. And I, I, I see those two things quite different. You can still be a producer and do the bulk party thing very well, but it's harder to do the, the big show festival situation. I, I, I have no idea what he's talking about with no, the boat parties. <laughs> I like it. I want to get on board. Um, well, how much room do you leave for improvisation? Because that's one of the things that I listen for in a great DJ set. You want to feel like anything could happen. They're taking you on this improvised journey. They're trying new things. And, and certainly as a DJ, that's part of the reward. You know, I would never want to pre-program everything that I was planning to play. So question for you guys is how much room do you leave when you are playing live? Yeah, when we're doing a festival set, we tend to plan out pretty much what we're going to do because you've sometimes only got an hour. It depends on how long you've got. And there are certain key records that you will want to play in that hour to such a big audience you'll want to put your hits in. However, I think when you play, you know, a two or three hour set in a club, that's then the opportunity, you know, to experiment a bit more and try new things out. And also, you know, maybe that week you just finish something in the studio and we'll, you know, throw it in there and it feels a bit naughty and it's exciting. That's and that's I enjoy that stuff. I think, you know, if you just do the festivals and just do the kind of big, you know, mainstream stuff. Um, you won't feel satisfied in the way that you're talking about. Whereas in a club, you can, you know, like the other week, I, I sort of did this bootleg of um, Daft Punk and Matt Zoe and Porter Robinson on the plane, and then you're playing it that night at the Win in Las Vegas. And that's, that's kind of rewarding and exciting in the way you're talking about, I think. Okay, so now the question of what's, what's next. I can only imagine that this whole process will <laughs> affect um, you going forward, the way that you make music and, and perform music. But what, you know, what do you see for the next year for Above and Beyond? We really need to uh, knuckle down, <laughs> finish off our album. We've written... This has been a distraction. Actually. I know, it, it, it has. I mean, Your manager is glaring over here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is a sensitive question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we, we, we've written a lot of songs for the album, but we just, this actually has, has become a lot, uh, it's kind of grown in importance and scale and... and and I think the enjoyment level has gone with that. And the thing that we're finding with it is, I mean, there's a, a guy called Michael who runs this place. He's been in the business for 40 years. He's never heard of us. He really loves what we're doing. And he's, you know, sorry, he's an older guy. So it may be that this thing finds a new audience for us that may involve us coming back to do it. To be honest, it's been basically a bit of fun for us. It's been really enjoyable to do it, but we we don't really have any further plans for it. We'll see what happens. We really need to knuckle down and finish our album, really. Yeah, and and get through this weekend. <laughs> That's Tony. Jono is here, and Pablo. They are above and beyond. An absolute pleasure, guys. Best of luck this weekend with the big shows, and we wish you all the best. 